0: This event was recorded at the 2018 Edinburgh International Book Festival.
1: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Stephen Gale. I'm very, very pleased to welcome you to the Edinburgh International Book Festival this evening for our event with our guest, David France. Um, David is an award-winning investigative journalist a best-selling author and an Oscar-nominated filmmaker. Some of you may have been here last year when he spoke at the festival about his superbly written and arguably definitive study of the AIDS crisis and how activists and scientists tamed AIDS, this book, How to Survive a Plague. Um, David having also made a film of the same name, which was premiered in 2012. This book was shortlisted for the Welcome Book Prize. It won the Green Carnation Prize and was the winner, of course, of the 2017 Bailey Gifford Prize for non-fiction. Now, Bailey Gifford and the Book Festival have commissioned David to write a new chapter, responding to what he has learned since his book was published, which he's going to deliver for us this evening. Um, There will be some time for you to ask questions as well towards the end of the event and afterwards, David will be signing copies in the main bookshop on the right as we leave this venue. But if you would, I'd ask you to join me again in welcoming our guest, David France.
2: Thank you. After surviving. Nature, the indigenous people of the ancient Lakota tribe once believed, generously assures that a people forced to endure a great burden will be rewarded with a great gift. Such is the balance sheet of the AIDS plague. An awful lot of good has come from an awful lot of bad. I know this sounds preposterous. Those of us who rode the white waters of the plague, that unrelenting decade and a half before 1996, when finally the miracle drugs did their miracle work, know only the deepest and broadest kind of grief, a cumulative loss so staggering that little more can be recalled than the stark and throbbing fact of it. Forty million people are dead of AIDS, 800,000 from my own country, 100,000 from my own city, young people seized from every apartment in my very own building. Today, 37 years after the onset, I struggle to conjure the names of my dead neighbors. I must open file cabinets and photo albums to recall them, to search for the memory of their wasting and spot-covered faces. Being witness to mass death flattens the mind. How can anything good come of that? For AIDS survivors, the answer is different than it is for the Lakota tribe, whose burdens include a decimating plague of smallpox and the arrival of the United States Army, who stole their land, slaughtered thousands, and condemned the rest to impoverished reservations, a confinement that lasted 150 years and goes on even today. Their great gift has yet to come. My people have been far luckier, What I chronicle in How to Survive a Plague is the way that AIDS and and the activism it spawned radically transformed everything having to do with science, with medicine, with public health and with new drug development. The gift of this legacy can't be understated. We've seen its contribution to breast cancer survival rates, to Alzheimer's research and work in any number of other serious ailments. The people who pulled this off were a remarkable bunch. They were not scientists, not even close. They included a high school dropout, a failed doctor, a, a actor, I mean, a bond trader, and a film archivist. Some were novelists or advertising account uh, managers or publicists, one of whom who had, had worked thanklessly for Donald Trump. What they had in common was a tenacious and extraordinary will to live. It was the rawest kind of self-interest that galvanized them. Being dead, Rilke tells us, is hard work. In the age of AIDS, being alive was much harder. The vast majority of these activists were gay or lesbian, and most were HIV-infected. They couldn't wait for a laconic and prejudiced slowed response to their health crisis. In the plague years, life expectancy was 18 months on average, while typical drug development timelines lagged for 7 to 10 years. This math concentrated their minds. Then they discovered that the development clock had not even yet begun. In year six of the epidemic, no researcher anywhere had gone into crisis mode. There were no pills in the pipeline. Finding no urgent leadership, they simply claimed that role for themselves. When they finished, new and promising medication could go from test tubes to medicine cabinets in under a year. Everything about the way new compounds are identified and drug trials are designed, the results are analyzed and medicines are regulated and brought to market, has been revolutionized by their efforts, the efforts of these citizen scientists. So has the way patients interact with their doctors. We are no longer faceless and voiceless recipients of their expertise, but active partners in every decision impacting our health. The legacy of that work is lasting and broad, benefiting people in the far corners of the earth." The years of plague saw the first time that patients demanded a direct role in their care at all levels. And at all levels, it made a difference. As a leading HIV pharmaceutical chemist told me, before AIDS activists forced their way into his laboratory, he had rarely considered the individual beneficiaries of his labors. He thought in terms of molecular action on the one hand and market share on the other For him, that changed when a sick young man, a club DJ named Bill Ballman, approached him at a scientific conference. Bill was one of about 200 people who, in a half-dozen cities across the United States, had enrolled in a trial of a promising experimental compound. But he was not content to be an ordinary lab rat. And, he told the researchers, the others weren't either. He knew this because he had quietly made contact with the majority of the patients on the trial, effectively unionizing the group. Bill spoke as their representative. They demanded a meeting with the research team in order to review the drug's efficacy data and the design of the research protocol. They would provide their own analysis of the operation, inviting the company to adopt any of their ideas that proved thoughtful. It was a highly unusual request. The pharmaceutical industry is famous for its secretiveness and competitiveness, a field notorious for arrogance. But the request was impossible to turn down because Bill paired it with a threat. Standing behind the Patients Union was the radical street action group ACT UP. Known for massive demonstrations and civil disobedience, they had already pummeled the stock price of other pharmaceutical companies that had denied their requests, Bill had an army to back him up. This was ACT UP's great innovation as activists, what they called their inside-outside strategy. Outside, protesters risking arrest would force open the halls of science and send in their self-made experts inside, where they demanded to be heard. Not surprisingly, Bill Bauman's team was invited in. While the drug that they were putting into their bodies ultimately showed little efficacy... He and his comrades did not relinquish that access. Their input proved essential in helping the company change course, devise a new approach to attacking HIV, manufacture a highly technical new drug, and roll it into trials in record time. The pharmaceutical company was Merck & Co. The drug was Crixivan, and the effect was immediate. In little more than a year, it was pushed into production, when it reached bed-bound patients in hospitals, its impact was so extraordinary that doctors were calling it a Lazarus effect. Dying men and women rose from their hospital beds and went on to resume ordinary lives. Today, 20 million people around the world are alive thanks to Crixivan and to the other drugs that the activists helped (coughs) identify, test, and market. Science would surely have made this breakthrough on its own, but certainly not in 1996 and maybe not in 1999 or 2001 and at the cost of hundreds of thousands of lives. I have made it my mission to understand and to explain this hidden piece of history, this story of perseverance and triumph of people who refused to die. What was accomplished then is without question one of the most remarkable medical stories of our time. Nobel Prizes have been given out for less. That this was accomplished at all is astounding, more so because it was formed by a, forged by a doomed and at the time utterly disenfranchised people. Homosexuality was illegal in most American cities, a posture upheld then by the Supreme Court. In the UK, the law, law known as Section 28 made it a crime simply to suggest the acceptability of gay relations. We had no power, no purchase on civic life, and yet... As a people, we managed to do what no one even thought possible. As the writer Andrew Sullivan says, if gay life and culture flourish for a thousand years, people will say this was their finest hour. It's important to acknowledge that the courageous figures who led ACT UP did not invent their movement from whole cloth. They stood on the shoulders of the American New Left and the civil rights movement on feminism, anti-war militancy, and women's health advocacy. Veterans of second-wave feminism schooled them. Defenders of the environment offered workshops. Worn copies of Dr. King's letter from a Birmingham jail passed hand to hand. They studied Gandhi, Derrida, Foucault, and Genet. They adapted their principles from all that had come before. It was the inside-outside strategy that was their real innovation, built on the notion that in order to make institutions bend to your will, you first needed to understand as much about those institutions as the people who controlled them. Lesson one, the activist stalwart Mark Harrington used to say, is, know your shit. Through intense immersion in immunology, cellular biology, and pharmaceutical chemistry, ACT UP's citizen scientists put themselves on a par with leaders in those fields. Now, conquering AIDS was never solely a scientific challenge. It required winning over mass media, which had refused to cover the epidemic initially, and activists had to go inside politics to liberate research money and inside the seats of American religious life to quiet ideological bigotry. They forced hospitals to stop refusing AIDS patients, humanized the health insurance industry, and upended housing policy. They produced and distributed proposals for avoiding the epidemic spread, including ways to clean hypodermic needles and make condoms ubiquitous. Each of these challenges had a committee within ACT UP devoted to knowing their respective shit. This multiplicity of experts across multiple disciplines was necessary to make ACT UP work. If a simple majority of members of the organization endorsed their campaigns, They had the activist army behind them, the outside to their inside, demonstrating on the streets to win access to their decision-makers. Each committee was able to create change as remarkable and lasting as the actions of the citizen scientists. It was a short journey from there to our deep social integration carried on the momentum of this victory. The years from 1996 forward saw one of the most profound civil rights revolutions in history. Legal and social recognition of the LGBTQ community came with bewildering speed, leading directly to marriage equality in 32 countries today. Nobody seriously imagined gay marriage before AIDS. It was not on anybody's agenda. The plague did this. It turned us from outlaws to in-laws. Recognizing our families was the logical progression of our activism. This momentum also has given us celebrity spokespeople elected officials, and roles, for good or bad, in the trenches of armed conflict. The plague of AIDS has put me here before you, on this page and in this place, and put you here absorbing absorbing this tale. There is no cl- place for the closet anymore. That is by far the greatest gift to come from our suffering. And in the m- remotest reaches of the pandemic from Africa, and elsewhere, came the gift of access to these miracles. The world recognized the moral imperative to make HIV care widely available. This has meant building a medical infrastructure in parts of the world where none had existed before, and finding the political will to make these medications available at low cost. Everyone, not just the millions of AIDS patients, benefited from this new reality, this saved humanity. 21st century healthcare is more universal than ever. Having spent the past three decades returning to these themes, I am left with a final question. Can the model of activism innovated in AIDS be successful in attacking other challenges? In other words, what has the plague of AIDS taught us in terms of empowerment and justice, in terms of humanity itself? This question takes on a driving urgency at a time when totalitarianism is ascendant and the power of good ideas is in retreat. Meaning and certitude have shifted beneath us. Truth, compassion, intelligence, science, community. These ideas are under direct attack today, their meanings gutted. The epidemic we face today is one of vicious nativism and populism, racism and terror. How can we act up now? Unfortunately, recent examples of grassroots activism have not had a fraction of ACT Up successes. The revolutionary wave called Arab Spring, which began in 2010 and spread to more than a dozen countries, drew mass demonstrations and toppled governments in the name of democracy. But change was not lasting. Instead, it yielded a consolidation of religious and military powers and not a day more of freedom. For a time in 2013 and 2014, pro-democracy activists in Moscow very consciously studied ACT UP's model of success. I know this because they were holding underground screenings of how to survive a plague, mining it for morals and tips. But Putin is a formidable opponent. And most of the leaders of, that pro- of those protests were forced from their country and now live in exile. A closer example of effective grassroots activism formed in the fall of 2011 and put a spotlight on economic inequality. They called themselves Occupy Wall Street, and they occupied our imagination, if briefly, after protesters established an encampment in the heart of New York's financial district. Their arrival was incendiary. Ordinary people in the country's heartland lit up with hope. My, My own father, a stranger to social protests, sent me a $10 bill with instructions to find Occupy's donations basket. Even President Barack Obama was forced to acknowledge their grievances. But by the first snows of winter, the moment of promise had passed, the group withered on its establishing dedication to consensus, not majority rule, as an operational principle. Any opposition could freeze forward motion. This left them without an agenda, a strategy, or even a spokesperson. Thus, Occupy Wall Street condemned itself to being an amorphous and leaderless system with roots in anarchic thought, never advancing beyond the vague threshold demand for economic justice. There would never be an inside strategy. For a time, then, it seemed that ACT UP's triumphs might never be replicated, but that appears to be changing. Currently in America, there are two more promising grassroots movements underway, both with genetic ties to plague-era activism. One is Black Lives Matter, that loosely organized band of protesters responding to the mounting epidemic of police shootings of unarmed African-American men. What began in 2014 with a group of women chanting on a street corner in St. Louis, Missouri, quickly grew into an army of thousands, claiming beachheads in 22 U.S. cities and 20 more around the globe. Like ACT UP, Black Lives Matter is spearheaded by an incongruous coalition of people with unlikely backgrounds, a teacher, a fundraiser, an artist, a magician. But included in the leadership are veterans of trade union organizing, immigrant rights advocacy, community healthcare militancy, and notably, the AIDS wars, a history they have modified for the changing times. Its momentum has been sustained across many years and it has moved from its threshold demand an end to summary executions into a movement addressing the many structural factors that devalue black lives including in education corporate life, Hollywood the media and politics this has required diversification of strategies and the development of detailed knowledge in multiple areas the movement for black lives a coordinated offshoot has embraced expertise and seized leadership an inside strategy every bit the child of act up Similarly, the Florida high school students fighting gun violence this year have embraced how to survive a plague as their Bible. They have reached out to act up veterans for counsel and for support. And they have staged dramatic and effective protests giving them the potential, finally the potential, to do something to stop America's bizarre pattern of school shootings and mass executions. As 18-year-old Emma Gonzalez, a survivor of one of the shootings, put it, It's time for victims to be the change that we need to see. Gonzalez, a remarkably eloquent and persuasive young woman, has has become one of the national leaders in the Never Again movement. Before a gunman killed 17 of her classmates and teachers, her activism was strictly local. She was president of her school's Gay Student Alliance. Since then, she has been in direct communication with Peter Staley, whose story animates my book and film. Staley has shared the lessons learned from ACT UP, making himself available as an active movement consultant, flying to join other survivors in their colorful, angry, innovative campaigns, borrowing directly from the AIDS handbook. It is too early to know how well they'll do, but like AIDS activists from the 90s, they have given fresh young faces to the terrifying truth that American schoolchildren know, like we knew in the 80s, that they are marked for death unless there is radical change. There have been over 2,000 American school victims in recent years. As the survivor of of a subsequent school shooting in Texas said, it's happening everywhere. I've always felt it would eventually happen here too. Both of our generations have stepped over the lifeless bodies of our neighbors. And through what Rilke calls our pearls of grief and the fine veil of suffering, we we dared to envision longevity Nobody in America has slowed the National Rifle Association, the most powerful corporate lobby the world has known. Will the children accomplish what the adults have not? For their sake and for ours, I pray they find their inside strategy.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much, David. Um, and while I think of it, ladies and gentlemen, I believe we have copies of David's lecture, which will be given to you as you leave uh, the venue later. Um, can I ask a few questions? Mm-hmm. Um, just thinking about the inside-outside strategy and the need to know your shit, how expert did this, uh, the ACT UP citizen
2: scientists become? How how good did they become? Um. I guess you know that's hard to measure. I, mm-hmm. I do know that their ideas were adopted by the people that um, were in positions to, to make these breakthroughs possible, right. um, and very specific and detailed ideas. Um, they, they re-envisioned drug trials, and they did it by looking at the patterns and practices of statistical analyses of the, um, the, the outcomes in those trials. And they recognized different and more effective and more humane ways to, uh, to gain the knowledge that would be necessary at the end of a drug trial to know whether or not the drug was going to work and in whom it was going to work uh, and at what dosage it was going to work. And they, yes. their, their uh, kind of revolutionary ideas there uh, uh, are now used in, in every uh, drug trial, as at least in uh, vi- antiviral research. Yeah. Um, and f- for that, they have been recognized, at least internally. I, n- I can say that many of the people who were in the core group that I focus on in How to Survive a Plague, which was a committee in ACT-UP that called itself Treatment and Data, and they were, as I said, uh, untrained, uh, many of them have gone on to get their PhDs and MDs right. and finish their education, having miraculously uh, saved their own lives and realized they needed to, uh, to be able to find a- an income and a... And a- and a way to contribute in larger ways. Yes. And um, so they are uh, significant figures now in the area of public health and pharmaceutical science. Um, so they, uh, the, the knowledge that they learned um, was true knowledge. Uh, and I think that that's the fact of this history that went missing for so many years. I, people remember the outside strategy. They remember the, the nightly news. They remember uh, the demonstrations and the... The, the blocked bridges and tunnels yes. um, without really knowing what was going on inside those corridors and, yes. and it was a true partnership um, uh, between those activists and the people who were doing that work not a partnership they welcomed um, nobody sure. with a Nobel Prize wants to be hearing from you know, a, a 28 year old uh, failed actor about how to do their work yeah. but eventually they learned to hear what, the, what these folks were saying yeah. and, uh, and it started to make some sense to them yeah. You mentioned just there that people, you
1: know, they saved their own lives. Now, I just wonder, many people thought they were going to die. And they did, they cashed in their pension plans. They traveled around the world, all of these things. And then, of course, they didn't die, which is obviously a good thing. Um, But Mm -hmm. how did that change their lives going forwards?
2: It was a good thing, obviously. It's what they were fighting for. Nobody expected it. Nobody planned for it. It was very disorienting. Uh, for all of us, I think, from that time, that um, because we weren't planning for ongoingness in any way, um, uh, most of us had not gotten on any kind of a career ladder. We had never um, thought about savings for the future. Um, There was a great um, benefit, as we used to call it, in being it, knowing that we could run up debt left and right and not have to do anything about it. <laughs> um, and suddenly we had to do something about it. We had, we had debts. We had credit card uh, collectors who were after us. Yeah. There, was, um, uh, there was this very strange um, sub-industry within the life insurance world where they called themselves the viaticators. It was the viatical industry. And they, would, they were offering um, some cents on a dollar to people who were dying of AIDS to buy their life insurance policy from them, mm-hmm. and um, uh, and so they would, if, if you could prove that you would, that you're likely to be dead in six months, they might give you forty cents on a dollar for your policy. You're dead in six months. You have a little bit of money to to make those six months, and they get the profit from it. Mm-hmm. Um, they were the people who were the most upset. I think when the pills came out, um, it destroyed that industry. And I have friends who are still getting calls, like once a year, from weak voiced people saying, "Are you still alive?" You know, like <laughs> you know, debt collectors from the from the viatical industry. So yeah, it was it was a disorienting time, and, and it really it sent a lot of people back to school. Yeah, um, it sent a, peop- a lot of people into uh, a kind of unexpected depression. Um, uh, having to confront this this new reality and it did something that was very unexpected it sparked a, a, a subsequent epidemic of uh, a, a drug use in the community of survivors and there was a, a large population of people who, especially activists and people who have been very close to death who, who turned uh, after the drug compounds came out to methamphetamines um, and uh, and created for the decade after 1996, a real problem in the community of mm. death from drug overdose and you know, drug addiction, and lives mm. ruined because of that. And mm. and I think that was in large part from not just the disorientation of survival, but the the idea that in the middle of this mass death experience, no one took time. There was no time to grieve what you had lost and what we had lost, and um, and to to remember and um, uh, and uh, and pay you know respect to the people who are dying. Yes, is
1: there? Do you think is there a danger that, as a younger generation grows up thinking erroneously of AIDS as a manageable illness, is there a danger of forgetting the epidemic's early days?
2: I I don't think it's erroneous. You know, an HIV infection in the West, if, if you're on effective medication, uh, is uh, is a you know a it's it, it's not a, a comfortable thing, not something you'd wish on people, but it's not going to really affect your lives. Mm-hmm. Um, effective medication brings viral load down to undetectable levels, and at, at undetectable uh, viral load levels, people are no longer infectious. So um, the, the the news, the good news around the medication is lasting and good. What I want people to remember what happened, because um, we need to know what the the potential of of, of you know bigotry and evil is, mm-hmm. and we need to know that it has to be fought at early turns um, and I want people to know um, not just young queer kids, but i want I want everybody to know what what was accomplished yeah. by these LGBT activists yeah. um, and the legacy that they left not just for the community but for humanity and mm-hmm. You know, it, I think it's a story that deserves to exist in the canons of great, um, you know, political uh, accomplishments in the yeah. social justice world. Yeah, yeah.
1: You, you mentioned in the lecture that you, we're not going back into the
2: closet. Um,
1: but it, it strikes me that conservatives don't always give up that
2: easily, you know? We see them fighting it again.
1: Yeah, I mean, and you know, we have a time when, to give an obvious example, the American president uses Twitter really as a distraction from things that are going on, like a lot of very reactionary justices being appointed Mm -hmm. at federal level and and so on. So I suppose my question is, how
2: entrenched are these freedoms, do you think? Uh, Let let me try to um, answer that question, a different question. Could could we go back to the 80s? And uh, I know we can't. We'll never get back there. Are there people in power who want us to go back there? Yeah. Um, and I think that um, that this ad- new administration we're suffering with has done everything that, that it could think of to try to empower forces that would bring us back there. A vice president who believes that homosexuality is a condition that needs addressing psychologically, um uh, every ca- cabinet member in this administration has a long history of anti-lgbt um, policies mm. and statements and initiatives um but what aids did in 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 making in burning down the closet was making it impossible for people to not know gay people uh it, n- people really didn't know gay people by all the the surveys that were done in the 70s and into the, I'm sorry, the 80s and into the 90s when the when the plague was really burning brightest, um, people believed that it was happening to other folks, people that they didn't know, people that they would never know, people didn't know about the gay people in their own families until they died. And that series of kind of the death after death, um, obituary after obituary really made it very plain to people that these were this was happening to people we knew mm. as a culture. It was not a m- mysterious group of others. And, and here we are, integrated, um, and, uh, and, and we, we're, we, we've seen it. We, we can count on um, the sentiments of the public to be with us. Mm. And s- so they, they, they can never succeed in that kind of draconian way that they might want to. Mm. It won't be pretty. It's not pretty what we're facing. Sure, sure, sure.
1: You talk about Peter Staley. You mentioned Staley, who features largely in the book and in right. your film. Could you just talk a little more about the work he's doing now with these young activists? I, th- I thought this was really interesting that you said that. He
2: has um, he has become such um, a kind of a living legend. Um, he yeah. he uh, people reach out to him, you know, by, by the hundreds every day. It's it's his full time job to respond to people who want to, who want to be inspired by the work that he accomplished, who wanna know uh, and be re- reminded that political pl- power can be seized by, by powerless people, uh, by young people, by, by people who um, who know that their ideas are solid and defensible. And, um, and I think uh, largely the people who are reaching out to him are people in that younger generation, the millennials and younger, who, um, who feel so remarkably powerless today, and, um, and he gives them hope that it's possible to get there. And that, that's become his full-time job and now. He, he has been wanting to take on the NRA for a long time. He started, even before the school shootings got so out of control, he started a group called GaG, um, Gays Against Guns. GaG. And he had a big plan to, he said, if we can conquer a, retro, a human retrovirus, we can get rid of these idiots. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so far he hasn't been able to, but when these, um, the kids from Florida came to him, he said, you know, uh, you can do it, you know, and I'll help you. And that's what he's working on full time now. And, the, you know, those, those kids, and scores of them have just finished a tour around the country. They, they, they went to 20 states over the summer. This was the summer after their senior year of high school. And um, you know, bringing their message to state houses and to other kids, and building this kind of um, this energy force that could really significantly take on the NRA for the first time. And mm. um, and their their spiritual grandfather is is the, the aged uh, AIDS warrior Peter Staley. Yeah.
1: yeah, yeah. I ask you one more question, if I may, and then perhaps we'll yeah. take some questions from the audience. Um, I mean, both your book and your film, you obviously you're recording this moment and, and it's invaluable that you have done so. But I was just wondering, in terms of activism, as pieces of activism, could you just talk about the relative merits of book and film?
2: Um. I, I guess you mean by how it, how they're received or how... Yeah. What kind and of power they find? What effect they might have. Um, I think it might be a little early to measure the effect of the book yet. And the book's been out for maybe a year and a half now. Um, the The film broke open a whole conversation. Yeah. Uh, it came out in 2012. Uh, a conversation mostly with people who are younger who knew nothing about it. Um, and it f- it has found its way into curricula in universities... Everywhere, um, it's being taught as, you know, as as the history of Western civilization. You know, it's part. Of, it's, it's part of the way we understand yeah. what happened. Um, I I don't think the film should have that role. The film is, for anyone who's seen it, is made of found footage. It's yeah. footage that the activists and the people with HIV themselves uh, filmed during those, th- those years. I didn't film any of it. I, I compiled this kind of narrow story, this hour and a half story out of 800 hours of footage that they had shot and left behind. Um, and so the story really in the film is just the story that they captured. Um, and it's very particular to their worldview. So it doesn't have that kind of historical, that kind of eye of the, the historian. Um, And I wanted to make sure that people didn't lose track of how difficult the work was that they did, and the film makes it seem a little too easy. Um, And it wasn't easy at all, Mm. and it was costly to them. Um, Not just the people who died uh, trying to to accomplish these things, but the the people who gave everything to try to make this happen. And and they made huge mistakes along the way, and, and I think what we see... In the book and I, I hope the book will also find that same kind of academic um audience is that um that they learned from their mistakes they didn't give up they they it took them forever they the uh, act up started uh, in year six of the epidemic they worked for the next six years and accomplished nothing it took the final three years for them to make that breakthrough and and in those six years and we see this with other movements you know the frustration and the sense of um, of of, you know uselessness futility can destroy your soul can destroy your movement and they didn't let that happen and I think that that's that if there's a, a kind of an inspirational message that we should take away from that is that Perseverance um, it is going to be required to make anything, yeah. to, make, to affect any change. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Can we you. take some questions? I would love to.
1: Yeah. Thank you. Uh, we have a colleague with a radio mic. I'm sure you know the drill. Um, it's helpful if they come to you so that we can all hear the question. Who'd like to ask something, David? Yeah, I see a hand at the back. <coughs> Thank you very much for your work.
0: Thank I worked you. in New York during the, the plague and I'm very touched to hear about.
1: I hope I, it doesn't seem like i'm diverting, but regarding President Trump and particularly recent events in recent days, there's a growing movement in Scotland. His mother was a MacLeod to have him expelled MacLeod MacLeod. <laughs> <laughs> what I want to know as a social activist is whether you think that would be too frivolous and would be counterproductive it 's a serious question
2: um and and, and um, and a valuable question, I think. Um, I think that one of the ways that this powerless group of AIDS patients was able to seize attention uh, was not through the direct work that they were doing, because they were being rebuffed. Um, they were being rebuffed because no, they had no kind of social power, and they gained social power by doing things that were very symbolic. Um, And I think, for example, of one of the actions for which they were highly criticized, um, it came at a time in the late 80s when political power in Washington was concentrated in the hands of a senator uh, from the Carolinas named Jesse Helms. And he controlled um, the federal budget. And he made sure every year that the federal budget rejected money for AIDS education, for AIDS research, for anything that might um, prevent the spread of the disease it was impossible to get around him. Uh, and they tried getting around him by going to other senators, by building kind of political coalitions elsewhere. Finally, they decided that they were just going to go after him. And they, they went to his house in North Carolina and, um, and, and rolled, unrolled an, an enormous 30-foot-tall condom over his house. <laughs> and on the front of the condom, it said, Helms is more deadly than a virus. And they they did it for uh, the power of ridicule, and um, and it got people laughing at him. It 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 invited uh, his colleagues in the Senate to you know to to giggle about his power and the kind of the, the pernicious uh, you know venality of his power. And um, and I believe that that action, symbolic like throwing. Trump out of his family clan um, has value because it captures the attention of the people and that attention is necessary for turning tides against the kind of evil that he represents. So I say do it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Another question. Somebody over here? Oh, and then back to the back. Um,
0: I I just wonder how much people should fear a uh, metamorphosis of the virus. So, if you take something like MRSA, it becomes resistant to drugs because of their overuse. You have a situation now where um, combination therapy is extremely effective, but you know that's that needs to be effective going forward as well. And the virus metamorphosized up till now. Is there a risk of it doing so again? And, and kind of what work is being done around that?
2: There is almost no risk um, that the uh, There are three different compounds that are used in the cocktail, as it used to be called, um, against HIV. And each of them attacks the virus in a different way. Um, uh, Mathematically, it's impossible for the virus to mutate around this triple drug approach. Uh, It can't do it. Initially, when the drug came out in 96, many people who went on the drug had been on a series of medications before that, monotherapy, before the three drugs came out. Uh, monotherapy allowed the drugs to mutate and, um, uh, and and find their powers in other ways. So those people were um, in a particular bind because they had already developed resistance to one or two of the drugs. Um, Peter Staley is one of those people and he's been on what they call salvage therapy, this this idea that you've got to pay attention to the virus in, that circulates in his body on a regular basis multiple times a year to, to um, Tinker with the medication so that that it doesn't get out of hand, but people who get diagnosed today They go on the therapies and the it reduces the viral load uh, The replication is low in their bodies, and there's there's no fear of, um, of Any kind of a super You know virus that comes from it. It used to be thought that that was possible, but um, It's 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 just not and and you may know that the drug is being used now in people who are HIV negative negative. Uh, um, and they're using it as a, a prophylaxis um, uh, taking it uh, in the same way in a daily basis to prevent um, transmission of the of the virus to them and it's very effective and there have been no breakthroughs um, in the you know hundreds of thousands of people who have taken that approach so far so I believe that the miracle drugs are miracle drugs and that I you know, um, that people should be taking them and should be um, uh, uh, you know, p- getting on the drugs as soon as they possibly can, whether or not right after their infection, or when they begin a kind of a semi-irresponsible uh, teenage um, kind of s- sexual um, life of experimentation, that the protection that it offers is valuable and reliable. A gentleman near the back.
0: Um, thanks very much for your work. Um, I, I was really struck um, by the by the comments in the chapter and then subsequently in answer to Stephen's question and the the juxtaposition of the gains that we've made and the losses that we made and I don't know, I'm going to go away and reflect on it. uh, My first partner died in 1995 um, and I always think he just failed to survive And, and I married my second partner last year and I've thought a lot about the fact that my first partner would think that what we did last year was kind of unimaginable. And I understand that, um, that, that what happened in terms of HIV was, was, was contextual in terms of the gains we've made. I, I guess I've never, oddly enough, and this might be a, a US, UK thing, I don't know, I never quite thought of it as causal in quite the way that you w- were describing. And, uh, I, I, I get your point about the stories. I've never th- thought about those particular stories of my life being relevant to games in quite that way, and it's um, partly comment. Sorry, but uh, just I'm interested in. It, it's quite a bold claim. Right. I, d- I don't reject it. I'm going to go away and think about it.
2: Well, uh, let me um, uh, tell you what what it seemed like to me in, in New York, anyway. Um, when the obituaries started to come, um, and it it took a, a battle to get some of those obituaries. Written and published, um, there was such a bias against us in the mainstream. Um, when they started to come they 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 were not including the survivors of the people who had died, and we started making a big deal about that. We started saying you've got to include they were they were listing our dead as though they had died friendless and you know a, a, a pitiful. Uh, lives um, locked away in hospitals with no families willing to claim them and no community at their side and that just wasn't true and we fought those battles in New York when the plague started um, the New York Times had a policy of not calling us gay uh, much less not recognizing our relationship so as a series of protests we began to get traction and I believe the same may have been true here with the people writing obituaries that they would start naming us. And at first they would name us the companion or longtime companion or some gluey, gooey kind of a a title that they were giving us that made us seem strange and alien to a lot of people. And we kept that pressure up until our relationships were indeed acknowledged in the obituary pages. And that was really the, the, the battlefield for the establishment of um, our families, our communities, the recognition that what we had built wasn't, uh, didn't have parallels to the, to the rest of the world, and it took the New York Times until the late '80s before they started calling us gay, and I remember being at. Um, conferences where you know Times executives would be speaking in their tweety way from the front of the room and, and uh, AIDS activists with stand in the back and just chant, interrupting them, chanting, call us gay, call us gay, call us gay. Um, and soon they did. And, um, and it's not, you know, I'm giving a lot of credit to the guys in the back of the room, but they're also the people who are dying at those papers. Mm. And suddenly their colleagues people they did like and people whose lives they did know yeah. weren't pathetic, were being stricken by HIV and dying in the hospital, surrounded by friends and their loved ones and their lovers and their children and um, their entire community. So that, that, that cultural recognition was a revolution that I think really did stem from there. And um, I, I say that uh, that when your lover died in 95 and mine died in 92, that they really didn't ever think that that gay marriage was going to happen, much less did they even really dream of it. Um, yeah, or, or even wanted it. We used to say, you know, we don't have to get married, we don't have to have children, we don't have to join the army. And now that's all we're doing. So <laughs> I, don't know, I don't really know what's going on, but, but it all stems from that period somehow. <laughs> As gentlemen gentleman here, second row here. Thank you. Um, I wonder if if I
3: can... Can ask you to, to expand a bit on the on the risks of writing the AIDS history, or maybe on the risks of writing AIDS as a history. So, um, and I, I think about this a lot. Be- I'm 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 teaching AIDS history at university, and I, I do assign you book.
2: Oh, thank whenever you. Whenever
3: I can. Thank you. And, um, and not the movie. <laughs> maybe I, I link to the movie. <laughs> okay, like, I come back with your comments, <laughs> and questions, and talk. About but um, I often think about the question of how to how to teach about the history of something so important that has, as you pointed out in your in your in your lecture just now, like has become a legacy for so many more fights along civil rights and social rights. Um, how to teach about the history that still is not over, yeah. that still continues to 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 reach into our present in many many different ways, and how and also where we find. Every now and then, new kinds of activism coming into being. Keyword here is, of course, prep. You know. mm-hmm. And uh, I wonder if you, if you can just talk a bit about that, having produced a film and a book that is very much received as, but also I think kind of produced as a kind of like a historical record of what has been AIDS. And right. so, what does that mean of declaring this to be somehow over?
2: All difficult questions. (laughs) Can I avoid them? Um, uh, Well, I I try to be careful to not declare AIDS over, and certainly the epidemic and the pandemic is as enormous as ever. There's some good news there, obviously, that the drugs are now being taken by some 20 million people, but some 20 other million people are still dying the same way we died back then, um, uh, brutally and quickly, um, and... um, and people are contracting the virus all over the world still, so that part is still ongoing. And I, th- I think you know that um, there was a hesitancy among, certainly within the community of people who experienced the plague years, and, and also among historians to um, to not go and, and declare the you know the good news from that period. Um, uh, I know that in 1996, when the pills came out, I was one of the people who was saying, who's writing, um, do not call this the end. Look what's happening. These pills are causing all sorts of problems. We, we don't know how toxic they are. We, the, the issues are still the same. Um, uh, and many of them are. But it is possible to survive the infection now and live a nearly ordinary life. And that's a huge victory and a huge breakthrough. And um, and no one wanted to have you know the the parade in the streets because of all the other issues because of so many people who didn't make it and um, and uh, you know I, when I started looking back at this time, kind of historicizing this time, almost 15 years had passed since that breakthrough in '96 and and, um, and it did seem dangerous to go back there, at least on a political level. Um, none of those AIDS activists who I wrote about or made the film about wanted me to go back there. And, um, and they were formidable opponents to this project. Um, and they were, as, um, as I show in the book, uh, like type A, 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 A personalities. And when they come out against you, it's, it's quite um, terrifying. Um, but I... There was something about that fifteen year mark, and you know I started looking at other periods of mass death, like the the Holocaust and the 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 the, the, the books that sought to look back and make sense of in some sort of global way about what might have happened there. It took about fifteen years before we started seeing those kind of I, the witness accounts and the historical uh lookbacks and um and like that time, I mean you know antiSemitism had not come to an end and um the, um, the 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 dangers for Jews in the world were not behind them, um, but there was something about that moment, as a watershed, that allowed for and in some way required us to go back and and see what those lessons were and. Um, so that's what I tried to do. The, the, uh, the title of both projects has sparked some anger still among the people who are still fighting uh, the AIDS epidemic, that, um, that, the, that they worried that this was shutting off people's interest in that time. But I think, in fact, it's done just the opposite, that it's um, opened up the, 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 the sense of possibility and, and empowerment, as I said before, to a new generation of people. And, and I think that's what these stories do. They, the stories of what we accomplished, even if we haven't solved every problem in that area. The stories of accomplishment uh, lead to more accomplishment, I think.
1: We can take one more question, if there's one? Yeah, right at the back. Yeah.
4: I want to ask you a question about uh, prescription drugs. But Before I do that, you mentioned you hoped that your book would uh, gain respect in academic circles. It's not an academic book. I read it last year it's majestic and it's a real page turner and it's and, and i have to confess i'm not gay and it's an, a fantastic history i mean it's just a, an extraordinary book but what i wanted Thank to you. say was um uh, that you say the pharmaceutical industry is very secretive uh you I- implicitly praise them for the for the miracle drug but tens of thousands of americans have died recently after the pharmaceutical industry Seduced and bribed the medical profession into prescribing opioids, which which are, which are addictive, mm-hmm. and I, I don't know if that's an ongoing thing it's uh, totally in, is, in, in yeah. America. It totally is. But the, the pharmaceutical, ha- we the people are very vulnerable to profit-hungry, uh, uh, the, ph- the profit-hungry pharmaceutical industry and, and, and gullible gullible doctors. What do we do about that?
2: You know, I've been, I've been scratching my head about that. Like, why don't we see an ACT UP in that community? Why don't we see you know, somebody trying to address that through activism? Um, and, um, and can it be addressed in the same way? You know, what what AIDS activists, the approach that they took to Big Pharma was to convince Big Pharma that they could make even more money by joining in trying to find <coughs> treatments in the epidemic. They proved, and this was Peter Staley's specific involvement in this, having come from Wall Street, uh, he proved to them by showing them projections on spreadsheets that, that their stock prices would go up if they treated people with HIV. Um, and, it, and then they, they took the case study of Burroughs Welcome, as it was called at the time, and, um, and, and, and helped Burroughs Welcome realize a 400% increase in their bottom line um, over a three-year period. It, it, and it made everybody hungry for that kind of money. And um, and so it was a different kind of a fight. You know, we wanted them to produce stuff and to sell it and, and, and give it away and bribe people into taking it, um, which is way different from what's going on in the opioid uh, issue and also with um, medical devices, which is another area of um, great uh, fraud on the part of the, the, the medical industry industry. Um, and, um, you know, I, I don't know if activism can impact regulation that way. And regulation really has to be brought by the, the state to, to rein them in. And, and in many cases, and certainly in the states, all that the fraudulent work they were doing with physicians and their bribery was already illegal. It just wasn't being enforced. And, um, and then there's this other issue, which is that people who are addicted to... Um, Prescription drugs are not m- as motivated as people who are dying of AIDS to 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 f- uh, find help to to save their lives, and that's the nature of addiction. Um, and families who have lost people to that addiction um, are no longer in that kind of immediate self-interest mode. Their battle has been lost. So it's a it doesn't translate um, easily from from one area to the other, but. Uh, it is a huge problem that somebody needs to, to find some sort of solution to, because I, you know the last year in the United States, figures for um, prescription drug deaths hit the highest level ever. It's, it's totally unchecked and, um, and with no signs that it's getting any better. But good question, and I, I hope that we all put our heads together and find some solution to that.
1: Um, as I mentioned earlier, David will be signing copies of his book in the main bookshop immediately after this. And I, I endorse The Last question. It's a marvellous book. It's a very important story and it's beautifully told and I heartily recommend it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd also like to thank Bailey Gifford for their support of his lecture this evening um, and I'd ask you to join me in thanking our guest, David France. Mm-hmm.
0: More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for EdbookFest. Book Fest.